0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening.
1: This morning's scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Word of God for the people of God. Diversity, Equity,
0: Inclusion, or DEI for short. What comes to mind when you hear those words? In themselves, those words speak of good things. And yet, the implementation of DEI initiatives across our country has led to a firestorm of controversy within recent years. The Harvard Business Review estimates that DEI initiatives account for over $50 billion of corporate spending every year. Yet, for all that spending, it doesn't seem like DEI mandates are working so well. We're more divided and less unified than we've ever been. An Atlantic article from last May called DEI counterproductive. And last fall two Harvard social scientists wrote in the wall street journal that DEI is more likely to hurt than help. Everyone in our culture is wondering how can we achieve real diversity, real equity, real inclusion, not forced diversity, not mandated equity, not coerced inclusion but real, meaningful unity in the midst of difference. In his brilliant book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scrivener invites his reader to to do this thought experiment. He asks the reader to imagine the ancient philosopher Plato on a debate show. And the statement Plato has to debate is this, some lives are worth more than others. To which Plato responds, what's the debate? Of course, some lives are worth more than others. See, for Plato and for most thinkers throughout human history, the idea that certain people were better or worth more was considered obvious, normal, good. The elite hung out with the elites. My people group is better than your people group, and that was that. What we consider inequality and disunity was normal. So what changed? Why does pretty much every modern person value diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, the Bible, the gospel, Christianity, regardless of how you might feel about corporate DEI policies today, the recognition that inequality and discrimination is wrong is a deeply Christian value. In fact, its roots are right here in the book of Ephesians. God's heart for his church is that every tribe, tongue, and nation would be united around the gospel. God's heart for his church is that racial division and strife would be done away with. And God's heart for his church is that he would take different people, different racially, socially, economically, politically, and unite them to one another because they first have been united to Christ. Now, I'm not even five minutes into this sermon, and let me name two things that are happening in the room right now. First, I have your attention. And second, anytime discussions about diversity or race or unity come up in the church, some people get really, really excited, and some get really nervous. For those of you who are excited, this issue is really important to you because you want to see the Church of Jesus Christ thrive in its calling to be the multi-ethnic family. And for those of you who are nervous, the concern is that is the church capitulating to the culture's agenda? Have they gone woke? Well, don't worry, hang with me. Wherever you are in your journey with Jesus, I'm sincerely glad you're here. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet, my name's Aaron, and I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Corumdale. And in Ephesians 2, the scriptures give us a vision for real, meaningful unity. In a world that is hungry for unity, we need to understand where unity comes from and what the point of it is. We need to see how the gospel leads to real, meaningful unity. And I want to show you this in four movements. The prerequisite for unity, the problem for unity, the power for unity, and then the purpose for unity. Or to put it more succinctly, prerequisite, problem, power, purpose. So first, the prerequisite for unity. Therefore, remember, verse 11, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 11 begins with the word therefore. And you might have heard someone say, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask, what's it there for? Kind of cheesy, but super helpful. In other words, to be a good Bible reader, you need to develop the skill of understanding how sentences and paragraphs relate to one another. See, To be a skilled Bible reader, you need to ask questions like, How does this paragraph relate to the paragraph that has come right before? So when Paul says the word therefore here in verse 11, he's referring to everything that he just talked about in verses 1 through 10. So what God's word is doing is intimately connecting the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and union with Christ with unity. Racial unity, political unity, social unity in the local church. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. And to start, Paul wants the Ephesians to remember. The command in verse 11 to remember is the only command found in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Remember. Remember what? Well, the text tells us, verses 11 and 12, it says, you Gentiles, meaning those who are not Jewish, which I assume is most of us in the room, That you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers of the covenants without hope and without God. In other words, remember what it was like before union with Christ. See, the prerequisite for unity is that we remember the gospel. We remember that you're not here because you're smarter, wiser, or better than the person sitting next to you. You're here because of God's abundant, rich mercy. He is the one who made you alive with Christ when you were dead in your sins. Remember that. This is what Paul is saying, and this is the prerequisite for unity. Because remembering grounds us. Remembering humbles us. Which leads to the problem for unity. Now, what is the problem? In other words, what prohibits unity amongst different kinds of people? Well, the text is going to tell us twice. First, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Hostility. There was hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. But this was never God's intent. Back in the first book of the Bible, God chose Abraham and his family, who would eventually become the nation of Israel, to be a blessing to the nations. God's plan was not just to bless Abraham, but to bring blessing through Abraham. In other words, God chose the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles. And when the Jews were delivered from slavery in Egypt, the Bible tells us that Israel left as a mixed multitude, likely meaning that some Egyptians had placed their faith in the Lord and had left Egypt with the Israelites. Later, Moses marries a woman from Ethiopia, Numbers 12. And so biblical scholar Esau Macaulay says this, African blood flows into Israel from the beginning as a fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Later, the prophets, through the prophets, God tells Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. Now, is this what happened? No. What happened was that God's people begin to take pride in their moral rectitude and begin to look down on the Gentiles because of their pagan practices, unclean, unwashed, profane. The Jews despised the Gentiles because they did not follow God's law, and the Gentiles despised the Jews because they were proud. And this created a dividing wall of hostility. And there actually was a real literal wall in the temple of Jerusalem, a wall separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. And one sign dating back to the time of Paul in the temple says this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In Acts 21, Paul is in trouble with the Jewish religious leaders and look at what they say. Men of Israel, help. This is the man, Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, He even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, interesting, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. There it is. Bringing someone non-Jewish into the temple. In other words... The Bible is full of religious people using religion to exclude those who don't look the same, think the same, act the same, or have the same political views. What about today? If Jesus were here today, what would he say? Who are we to build up walls when the Prince of Peace has torn them down? See, let's be real clear about what Paul is addressing Paul is addressing hostility in the church between two groups of different people, different races, different socioeconomics, different politics. The dividing wall was political, cultural, and racial. And this was and is a problem still today. Today, hostility manifests itself in tribalism. Tribalism is building a false notion of community around what someone is against. Tribalism says, these are my people because I'm against those people. They are against those policies. See, this is what ends up happening. We build an identity on something that is kind of sort of true about us, but it is not our identity in Christ. It might be politics. It might be gender. It might be socioeconomics. It might be life stage. Then we find our self-worth in our identities by looking down on other people who are different than us to make us feel worthy, to make us feel better, to make us feel more superior. And most of the time, this starts in really subtle ways before eventually we begin to say, I'm glad I'm not like them everyone has a tendency to look down on someone and this makes us start feeling good about ourselves and very soon it becomes our basis for identity and self-worth and community and we begin to despise other groups but that's tribalism that's not true identity that's not true community it's contempt it's tribalism it's hostility And we do this in small ways. Like where we go drink coffee. Hey, I'd love to hang out and meet meet up with you sometime. Wanna go meet at Scooter's? Oh. (laughs) I don't know. See, you do that, I do that. It's super silly. But in all seriousness, We all have a propensity to set up dividing walls that eventually turn into hostility. But a deep enough grasp of the gospel has the power to create real, meaningful unity in the midst of difference, whether it's racial or political or social, you name it. And this leads to our third point, the power for unity. Now, unity doesn't mean we agree on everything. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not cloning. Unity doesn't mean that everyone thinks exactly like you do. It doesn't mean everyone votes the same way as you do. And unity does not mean we ignore our differences. Unity doesn't mean we avoid hard conversations. But did you know you can have convictions without harboring hostility. You can have deep convictions about who you vote for and not harbor hostility or contempt for someone who thinks differently than you. Did you know that? That's possible. But only if the root of hostility and hatred is destroyed. But now verse 13 in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus creates one new humanity. New kinds of humans, the genuine way of being human that's filled with God's very life. And the scriptures are talking about a new way of being human in the midst of a world full of hostility, a new way of being human, which pursues unity because first, these new humans have been united with Christ. And unity is not just this new or trendy issue that Christians should now just care about. See, if you think all this talk about unity, whether it be racial or political or socioeconomic, is non-essential to the gospel, let me remind you of Paul's previous encounter with the Apostle Peter. In the book of Galatians, Paul confronts the Apostle Peter. Why? Because Peter had stopped eating with the Gentiles he had divided himself from the Gentiles and had fallen back in the old humanity pattern of division and disunity. But what does Paul say to Peter in the book of Galatians? Paul doesn't tell Peter, hey, stop being a racist. What you're doing is racist. What you're doing is full of prejudice. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says to Peter, You are not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, you don't understand the gospel. You haven't applied the gospel deep enough to address the division to which you are propagating. Peter's disunity was a gospel issue. And in the generation to follow Peter and Paul, these new kinds of humans were called the third race. In the second century, Church Father Clement of Alexandria wrote, we who worship God in a new way, as the third race, are Christians. But I really love how the Church Father Athanasius, one of the main writers of the Nicene Creed, puts it. He says, if the Lord's death is the ransom for all, and by his death the middle wall of partition is broken down, and the calling of the nations is brought about, how would he have called us to him had he not been crucified? For it is only on the cross that a man dies with his hands spread out. Whence it was fitting for the Lord to bear this also and to spread out his hands. That with the one he might draw the ancient people, the Jews. And the other, the Gentiles. And unite both to himself. When you look at the cross, you need to remember both beams. The vertical beam reminding you of your union with Christ and the horizontal beam, reminding you that you are united with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because here's what I want you to see. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing powerful enough to create real, meaningful, lasting unity. Why? Because Jesus gets at the root. Verse 16 says Jesus killed hostility on the cross. That is so rich. A few years ago there was a TED talk that was circulating from Megan Phelps Roper in which she outlined four really good steps toward building unity. And her four points were for the most part brilliant. Number one, don't assume bad intent because assuming bad intent immediately cuts us off from truly understanding someone else. Number two, ask questions. We can't understand where people are coming from until we learn to listen and asking questions is a beautiful way of listening. Number three, stay calm. Roper says that we tend to justify our, our, we we tend to think our rightness justifies our rudeness. So because we think we're right, we then think we have the right to be rude. Number four, she said, make the argument. Roper says that we think our views are so right and so obvious that we tend to think we don't have to do the hard work of explaining why. And the point of me bringing this up briefly is simply this, yes and amen to all those points. As Christians, we should affirm and celebrate and lean into things like this. And in many ways, I would say Jesus embodied these kinds of virtues. But I would also say it doesn't go deep enough. If this was enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. He could have come and just not assumed bad intent. He could have come and just stayed calm and asked really good questions. But Jesus had to do something deeper. Jesus wanted to do something deeper and more transformative. Jesus had to put to death the power of hostility and hate that resides in each of us. He had to destroy the power of hate. And as I've heard it said before, Jesus' body on the cross became a grave for hate. In other words, Jesus took in hate but did not give hate back. Jesus' death functions like a water filter for hate and hostility. He takes in hatred, absorbs it, destroyed it, and gives back love. He takes in hostility, holds it, destroys it, and gives back blessing. He takes in death, holds it, destroys it, and gives back his very life. Jesus' body on the cross became a grave for hate. Meaning Jesus' death wasn't the only thing to die on the cross. The power of hate died when Jesus died. The power of a hostility died when Jesus died. Jesus died by hate to kill hate. Or as one commentator puts it, Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was a slayer too but the slain was a slayer too. The scriptures are saying that if you take the gospel and the power of the cross out of the equation, you have no power to see the unity that your heart is longing for. The best you can do is force or mandate unity. And there's a significant segment of our culture and the church that is attempting to build unity without the power of the cross. And there's a significant segment within the church that is attempting to minimize the importance of the type of unity the cross accomplishes. And both camps are void of the power of God. And in doing so, miss out on the purpose for unity. See, we've looked at the prerequisite for unity, remembering the gospel. We've looked at the problem for unity, hate, hostility, We've looked at the power for unity, the cross, the gospel. But last, I want us to see the purpose for unity. What is the purpose for unity? Take a look at 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. When Paul says far off and near, who is he talking about? Who are the far off? The Gentiles. Those who did not have God's law and promises, they were without God. And who are the near? The Jews, Israel. Those who had God's law and instruction. Those who thought that they were living for God, but actually their religion was just a foil. And the gospel says that both, the near and the far, the religious and the irreligious, both need the gospel. And if you've been around Quorum for any length of time, you'll eventually hear us talk about two kinds of lostness. And it's passages like this that undergird that conviction. Both, those who are far off, they have no conception of who God is, no understanding of the Bible and what it means to follow God, and those who are near. They grew up in church. They know some Bible stories. Both groups need an encounter with Jesus. And the text is saying, that it is very possible to have a deep background in history of doing churchy things and not know Jesus. And like I said last week, some of you need to get in the wheelbarrow. Some of you need to surrender to Christ and decide to follow him. Because his goodness and grace is chasing you down. And God has a greater purpose for you than lifeless religion. And God has a greater purpose for you than you just simply living for yourself while you use religion as a facade. Because check out what Paul says next in verse 18. For through him, we both have access to, in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, members of fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Jesus has torn down or demolished the dividing wall of hostility. But Jesus doesn't just tear down. Much of our society specializes in tearing things down, especially in conversations with race and ethnicity. Tear down institutions, tear down monuments, tear down people. Max Horkheimer was one of the founders of what has become to be known as critical theory. My email, by the way, is bob at cdomaha.com. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> Maybe you've heard of critical theory. <laughs> In 1937, Horkheimer wrote, "A the critical theory has no specific influence on its side except concern for the abolition or destruction of social injustice. On one level, that sounds great. Christians should be about fighting and abolishing injustice. But if all we're doing is tearing down and demolishing, what are we left with? Jesus doesn't just tear down and deconstruct. Jesus builds something new and whole. In fact, Jesus is the key foundation piece of the whole project. He himself is the cornerstone. And what he is building is a new house, a new temple. See, we need to hold two things together here. On one hand, the text says that Jesus killed hostility, past tense. And the text says we are being built, present tense, into a holy unified temple for the spirit of God. Now and not yet unity is a work in progress. It's not instant. We can't over idealize unity or as Bonhoeffer might say, you're going to be the one who destroys unity. We live between the moment of Jesus' death where hostility and hate were put to death and we are presently, right now, a work in progress. We are being built right now into a holy, unified temple for the Spirit of God. So yes, we work hard, empowered by God's Spirit to pursue unity where we can and however we can. And let me just say, this starts at your dinner table. This starts in your gospel community. And in the meantime, we wait. We long for more. We long for the day when every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around the throne room praising and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. See, friends, a unified church is a dwelling place where the Spirit of God longs to be. This is the church Jesus longs for. When the people of God are unified in Christ, God's spirit is tangibly present in a profound way. His presence is thick when his people are pursuing unity. And you won't fully experience the spirit of God if you only hang out with people who vote like you, look like you, and agree with you on everything. And here's what I know about you if you're a follower of Jesus. You deep down long for more of the Spirit's power and presence in your life. You desire to live the kind of life that can only be explained by God's Holy Spirit. Deep down, both what you really need and what you want is a move of God's Spirit to experience and know and taste and see that God is as really good as his word claims to be. And you long for the renewal and reconciliation that the spirit can bring to your life, to your family, and to our city. And the spirit is beginning and continuing that work right here in his church amongst the people of Cormdale. Unity and renewal starts with the people of God marked by the Spirit of God. And this passage is in many ways about God's Spirit meeting His people at the intersection of their lives and the places of relational pain and disunity. The Spirit wants to meet you at that intersection where your life and relational disunity are present. See, the Spirit wants to move amongst a unified people in Christ. The dwelling place for the Spirit is the purpose. God's Spirit is the point. So, where's the division? Where is the place of pain? Because the Holy Spirit wants to be there. The Holy Spirit is there. And the Spirit wants to bring renewal and unity and hope to that place. So, Lord, we ask. We ask that you would do that work. Holy Spirit, you would come and you would fill and you would enliven when you would continue that work of bringing unity amongst your people. Holy Spirit, we long to see and experience more of your presence and power in our lives. So forgive us for all the ways that we tend to harbor hostility or hatred or even bitterness and contempt in our own hearts. Help us to rest and trust in your work. And we pray and we ask, God, Holy Spirit, come. Would you fill us afresh? And would you move and lead and guide your people into deeper communion with Jesus and unity with one another? Come, we ask, we pray in your name. Amen.